0: Good evening everybody I'm very glad to see so many people here this evening um, to welcome you to this relatively informal British government at LSE session we're extremely glad to have Gus O 'Donnell with us who is only recently sprung from a long stretch in the civil service um, and I hope he's going to be suitably um, ambiguous about what has happened in the past few years um, I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions to ask him and The way we'll handle it this evening is that Gus will talk first for um, 20 minutes or half an hour, and I think that will set the scene very much for the kind of questions you'll want to deal with, Um, and and then we'll open it to the audience. I get first chance under this regime to ask a couple of questions of Gus, which gives you an opportunity as well to think them up yourselves. This is a very important part of the work we're doing at the LSE to really bring together and publicise both the work that we're doing at the LSE ourselves and the links that the school has over the years, both with government and with the politicians and the way in which government in Britain is developing. And we're very glad that Gus is able to come from the very high pinnacle of the civil service um, to really start us off with looking at the institutions of government in an in-depth and thoroughly well-informed way. Most of you will know that um, he spent most of his career in the Treasury. Started as an academic, like a number of us, but spent long years in the Treasury, in the IMF and the World Bank as well. was a permanent secretary by the turn of the century and has been in the really very, very difficult role of combining cabinet secretary and head of the civil service for the last six years. Um, What I think is particularly noticeable, of course, is they've had to split it since Gus, Gus stopped, and two people are now taking this on, but it's always been a very difficult balance, and it's going to be very interesting to hear what he has to say about how he handled the role.
1: Thank you. It is a delight to be here at LSE uh, amongst so many people who care about public policy and uh, the way in which public servants can influence public policy. So I want to use the opportunity tonight to talk about some of the lessons I've learned uh, in my over 30 years working in the public sector, and I thought, uh, what are the moments when you learn the most? And actually, I look back on it, and sometimes these lessons are very painful. Believe me, the scars are still there, and they're quite fresh in some cases. Um, But actually, I learned most from the triumphs and disasters, and and those who know me will know that having basically had to give up playing football, which was my passion when I was uh, the age that most of your students uh, are, uh, I now play a lot of tennis. And if you go to Wimbledon, in the club room, they've got this uh, wonderful uh, phrase set up there, which is, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. So what I want to do is talk about triumphs and disasters and the lessons one can learn from them point about this is also a kind of clear point about accountability one of the things you need to know about accountability is that you can learn as much from success as you can from failure and when you only concentrate on one side of that coin you miss an enormous amount so being an optimist I thought I'd start off with some triumphs and I'm going to go through three triumphs and three disasters and then because I'm a numbers person I'm going to give you ten commandments uh, to allow you to navigate your way through the triumphs and disasters that are about to come. Uh, As you will see as well, being an economist uh, who plays poker, I'm going to be slightly shifty with the numbers at times. I'll stick to the ten on the commandments, but the threes may vary. So my three triumphs, Uh, let me start off with the first triumph, which uh, uh, I was at a talk this morning about the disaster that it is at the minute, but uh, the triumph for me was the decision not to join the euro. Uh, When you look back on it, it may seem obvious now, but actually uh, when I was uh, in the Treasury, 1997, uh, actually I was then in in the fund, um, you look back on that choice when you had a prime minister coming in, remember, who was very keen on the politics, as I will put it, trumping the economics, as had been the case at Maastricht, I would say, in the creation of the vision of an ever closer Europe, and the decision to uh, set up uh, the euro where basically the politics was clear but the economics was anything but. And then we spent a number of years, and I was on some of the committees that did this, trying to sort out the economics to go with a political vision of ever closer union, the phrase that was in the Maastricht. And we we did come up with some rules. Uh, We came up with a no bailout rule. We came out with fines for the stability pact and neither actually had any credibility. And that was why uh, Greece, for example, was able to borrow at such very low interest rates. So what do I learn from uh, the euro? I think, first of all, that decision, a political decision, and I'm going to say these are are triumphs of the politicians and going to be clear about the role of politicians and advisers. I think that was a clear triumph of the politicians in deciding in the end, despite many of the heavyweights wanting to uh, go in, to actually decide not to. Uh, And uh, the role of the advisers there was to actually look at the economic analysis. And it's a really good example where you did some very, very serious economic cost-benefit analysis work. The five tests, which are very large documents, to this day uh, are documents that I would strongly commend. I heard this morning um, the current uh, president of the EBRD saying that a number of his members were lining up to join the euro. And, and the one thing I would commend them all to do is to read the five tests analysis I, my one regret in life is that we didn't translate it into Greek uh, <laughs> uh, final point on the euro is uh, the, that was the triumph of the Labour government you should remember that they wouldn't even have had the option if it had not been for the previous Conservative government and John Major agreeing an opt out at Maastricht otherwise we would have been in the situation uh, of just finding ways of joining in so, I think that's a question of uh, a, a real lesson in terms of wanting key economic analysis to be important. Uh, and I, I think there's a, that five tests gives you an interesting uh, piece of analysis that one might want to extrapolate so That was a decision by the Chancellor to to really kind of say, okay, this is a really important economics decision. Let's make sure that we do lots of objective economic analysis. We we outsourced some of it. We had some uh, American economists telling us about how the United States could operate as a single currency. Uh, And uh, that that was Truman did that. And so I think that sort of thing is rather good. If you think about extrapolating that, how can you get that sort of analysis? I think we should think about are there ways we can get uh, the politicians to think about using as comprehensive a set of economic analysis uh, in other areas. And I'll come back to one or two where we might do that. So, triumph number one. Triumph number two, I would say, the establishment of an independent monetary policy committee. Now, why do I say this? I think... The point here was an interesting example of politicians ceding power over decisions. Up to then the Chancellor had made up their minds what interest rates should be and this was an interesting shift of accountabilities. So the new accountabilities model had the Chancellor taking responsibility, being accountable to Parliament for the setting of the inflation target, but delegating power to uh, a bunch of independent people chaired by the Governor of the Bank of England uh, and, and not, I stress, the words I used were very important there, setting up an independent monetary policy committee. Not setting up an independent central bank, setting up an independent monetary policy committee. Very big difference. Right. So I think that accountability regime was very interesting. So the monetary policy committee are accountable uh, to the public. They have very open, uh, transparent processes of voting. They appear before uh, press conferences. They appear before select committees. A very high degree of accountability. A very interesting example where you've delegated power and you've delegated accountability. And where the Chancellor remains accountable is for setting the inflation target. So he's accountable to Parliament for the overall. System, as it were, but you've set up really good accountabilities. That's a model that could be extrapolated in lots and lots of other areas. So I'd say that, to me, a very big triumph. And the reason it works so well, I think, and this is not, I stress, that I believe monetary policy has been perfect in the past. I don't think any institutional setup will give you perfect monetary policy. But I think it's been better than it would have been under previous uh, regimes, institutional regimes, I think you could add to that, and this is where I start to cheat on my three numbers, uh, the coalition government's decision to set up an Office of Budget Responsibility, which is another interesting example of them setting up a separate independent body, technocratic body, to start looking at and uh, considering independently and giving credibility to certain areas such as the economic forecast. And one can imagine the OBR has been used at the moment for Treasury, Uh, budget things Um, and it's well worth asking the question why that why just that and I think if you do ask that question you start to think actually that's a good question and uh, I think that there is something to explore about if the OBR works and provides credibility in that set of areas of policy couldn't that same uh, idea be applied elsewhere in policy so I just leave that kind of up in the air uh, I would stress one thing about the OBR is don't test their efficacy by the quality of their forecasts. I, I spent my life doing economic forecasts, it's a bit of a mugs game to be honest. Um, they, they, I hope, might uh, reduce the bias in the estimates. I very much doubt for the economists in the room they'll reduce the standard errors of their forecasts. I think it's going to be quite hard to do that. Third triumph, and this is where I'm going to uh, cheat even more in the numbers, is I think we've had some really, really interesting examples of applied economics, microeconomics, to uh, different policy areas. One of the things I think people forget is how simple things, simple tax changes, can radically change people's behavior. If you look back on it, uh, we all used to drive, those of us who drive cars, cars fueled with leaded petrol, pretty noxious stuff. Uh, how do you convert everybody to drive around in a car with unleaded petrol answer, create a tax wedge between the two and that was an amazingly effective policy of moving everyone from one unleaded uh, sorry, from leaded to unleaded petrol there are lots of other examples I could give Uh, one of the classic charts I've seen is of lung cancer rates in the UK versus France and if you look at those rates you'll see them going like that in France and going the opposite way in the UK. What explains the difference It's not uh, medicine, I can assure you, it's good old treasury, it's tax. In the UK just kept putting the price up dramatically and that made a big difference. So sometimes the traditional things can make a big difference. I think there are other areas I'd say where uh, you're not using standard economic analysis to do these things. if we had time tonight, I would love to go into a lot more detail about the things we are doing in what's called the nudge unit. And I'm, I'm still uh, chairing an advisory group on the behavior change area, where we are starting to think of simple policy changes that can have a dramatic difference. Most of these policy changes turn out not to cost you very much, which makes them incredibly popular with the Treasury, um, and to have big effect. The one question I'd have about nudge is people think a nudge is a very small thing which creates a small result. That's completely wrong. It's a very small thing that can create fantastically big results. Some of these ideas, if applied to, let's say, fraud uh, and tax collection, you're talking numbers that don't start with an M. They're not millions, they're billions, if you get it right. So you can do some transformational issues there. So I think when you look back on some of these things, a lot of them are application of basic stuff that we all knew, and the question was why didn't we apply it more generally? But there are also some areas where occasionally you have to take a stab uh, in the dark. And I remember joining the Treasury in 1979, and there were two particular kind of stabs in the dark that were done, uh, mostly on the uh, by Nigel Lawson and Geoffrey Howe, which were at the time incredibly controversial. The first was the abolition of exchange controls. Uh, Now, this audience probably would think I was mad if I said to you, I want to introduce a policy whereby you can't take more than 35 pounds out of the country. Um, That's the policy we had. Uh, Most of you would think it probably wouldn't be a good idea for cable and wireless, or British Telecom, or British Airways to be in the public sector. they were all privatized. It was all very controversial. And the interesting part about that, as Nigel Lawson makes clear in his memoirs, is that there wasn't a consensus on any of these things at the time. There wasn't an academic consensus that these were necessarily smart things to do. And we didn't have the evidence base uh, that allowed you to actually develop you know, the, the thing that, as a civil servant who cares massively about evidence-based policy, You couldn't create evidence-based policies for some of these things. Uh, So I think the lesson from that for me is occasionally you do have to try these things. Of course, we now have some techniques where we haven't got much evidence. We actually think about can we do pilots, can we do experiments, can we generate evidence? Can we start to do things which will allow us to learn in areas where we haven't done it before? And, of course, if you compare trying to do these things in 1979 or 1980 with doing them in 2010 or 2011, we have, it's so much easier now. And when people talk about the good old days of policy in the past versus now, believe me, I want to be in the now, not the then. When I want to look at uh, the impact of a policy, I can go on the Internet, I can find out what's been done around the world, I can look at all the studies, I've got the collective wisdom of academia, and I can do that with an internet search. Uh, and I can therefore learn an enormous amount a lot more quickly. Whereas, believe me, I remember in 1979 trying to do that sort of thing was very slow. And as a result, you tended to be quite inward focused. So there wasn't so much of being able to learn from what everybody else has done around the world through different times. Right three triumphs. Now the bit where you will all be more interested is disasters, because I find that we are very asymmetric in the way we approach these things. We love thinking about the disasters. first disaster I'd choose uh, was the poll tax. Um, And uh, it it matters to me because if you remember from uh, what was said about my past, I used to be a press secretary and I worked for John Major. Uh, John Major was Chancellor, became Prime Minister back in 1990, and was 20 points behind in the opinion polls and was running up to uh, an election, the economy was going down every month, uh, and, and what was he going to do? And one of the things was remove the negative, and the negative was mostly the poll tax. Now the poll tax is actually, as the economists in the room will tell you, the textbooks tell us is the least distortionary of all taxes. Uh, it's written up as a great triumph the poll tax. Um, and some could argue that the poll tax is an example of economics trumping politics. Actually, I would argue that's a very bad understanding of economics. It's basically looking at the efficiency without the distribution, which is, in my book, a cardinal sin. Um, But at the time, there were uh, people, actually officials, saying uh, poll tax. I've I've looked back at the report by DOE officials. Uh, Poll tax would have resulted in a pensioner couple in inner London paying 22% of their net income in poll tax, whereas a better-off couple in the suburbs would pay 1%. You might think that would give you a clue that some problems with this policy. Um, just uh, in those days, uh, they were pretty clear with their words, obviously pre FOI. Quotes uh, the report says the poll tax is, and I quote, completely unworkable and politically catastrophic. Um, can't quite see those words appearing in a report at the moment, actually. Um, and it did indeed prove politically catastrophic for the then Prime Minister uh, Margaret Thatcher. So uh, what lessons do we learn from that? Well, the first lesson I learned, and, and I call this my Irish axiom, and I know, as an O'Donnell, I'm allowed to say that, is don't start from here. Right? When you look at, and, and there are experts here on local government I know, when you look at what had happened is successive governments had allowed for local government to be financed more and more by central taxation. Uh, and as a result of that, any changes would result in very big winners and losers. And I have uh, what I call uh, an iron law of these matters, um, which is that, um, uh, let me get it right, the iron law of tax changes is that the losers scream and the winners remain silent. Right? And, and that's exactly what would happen. Now, uh, the second part of this, of course, if, if you want to do a tax change, you better get the Treasury on side. And the poll tax was classically an example where Nigel Lawson was against the introduction of that tax. What happens if the Treasury aren't on side? Well, like I said, the issue was distributional problems. How do you handle winners and losers distributionally? You throw money at the losers. Um, And boy, were the losers screaming. You need the money to compensate the screamers. Uh, If you don't do that, then... Basically, what will happen is uh, you're going to have a problem. The Treasury will not come up with the money, so the screamers scream, and the Treasury says when the policy falls apart, I told you so. They're good at that. Um, So uh, the lesson is um, make sure you get the Treasury on side. Think about the distributional consequences of all changes, and don't assume that uh, the distributional consequences won't be you know, we'll be all be lumped together, you have to think about individual issues as well as uh, the overall general issues so that's my uh, and also you need to make sure you've got vi- clear political support second disaster, and I'm going to hurry up now because so I, I want to get to my commandments about how you solve these things second disaster must be our failure to spot the financial crisis in 2008 and uh, I very much take my share of the blame for that when I look back on it I, I always, uh, and it's a classic, you work under certain assumptions that you hold to be true and it turns out those assumptions are not true. I was working on the assumption that banks knew what they were doing and that was completely wrong as we now know. <laughs> so there we are. There, there are lots of lessons I think that uh, come from that um, about the need to revise the regulatory system, the need to think about regulation in a global, not just a national sense the need to handle banks who are deemed too big to fail uh, and the need for us to learn from uh, other countries, in particular when you look at countries like Canada uh, you you see how they managed a system whereby they have banks that manage both retail and investment banking together who've um, managed to keep things together and come through uh, very well. So I think there's a lot there uh, that one can learn. There's also a lot you can learn about the way uh, politicians respond and I think I was here for Anister Darling's uh, talk, and when you look back on the things that he did and the things that Gordon Brown did, and the G20 conference, you see politicians there grasping the need for urgency and crisis management and actually making a huge difference. And again, it was an example where we were trying to formulate policy advice in a circumstance where we really didn't have much from the past to go on. You know, you didn't have a modern financial crisis. Um, Ford, it was lucky that there were a number of us who were kind of older and had experience of recessions, but also had our experience of things like um, learning in lecture theatres like this about liquidity traps and constant easing and helicopters throwing down money. So there were a lot of people. It was good to have some old, wise heads around. Um, and that, I think, mattered. Now, my third failure, I'm going to use a microeconomic example. Uh, and, and this is a, seems to me an interesting one. My third failure and, uh, is the planning system. Right? The interesting thing, I think, about the planning system is that I have been through the, the roller coaster of growth, recession, many, many times. Whenever there's a recession, the number one policy recommendation from officials is to review the planning system, because that's what's holding back growth and development. Now, it's an interesting one, and, and it's, I wanted to use that because I've heard it from every single government. I've heard that exactly the same thing from every single government, and they all come to it and they say, we've got to do this. And, and you can see if someone's got as their idea, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to maximise GDP? it's very clear. If you want to maximise GDP, it's a very simple policy. You basically concrete over the South East. Completely straightforward. Gets GDP up a lot. But we don't do it. Why? Uh, Well, I hope and think it's because no sane person would want to maximise GDP. It's a daft thing to want to do. Uh, We should have grown up beyond that. We should now be thinking about the failures of GDP and the fact that we need to have a better overall measure. And that I think, uh, seeing someone in the room knows a bit about this, is to think about the overall well-being and happiness of society. And I think once we start to put these things in context, you can actually start to think about, so what is it you want the planning system to achieve? And then you, you see this as an issue and a problem about sorting out what your overall objectives and desired outcomes are. And if you haven't sorted that out, as, I, as I'll come on to, I think you, you get some real problems. So that's why I think uh, it's really good that we're now starting to see some policy development which actually moves us away from simply maximizing GDP. And uh, that's led us to some fantastic policies, And, and I'm seeing Richard there, the tireless work that he's done to tackle mental health, for example, I think is absolutely crucial example of where Uh, You can have a policy which actually absolutely increases happiness and well-being, but not necessarily uh, increases GDP, although it might actually do that as well. So what do I learn from this? I'm going to whiz through the 10 commandments of good policymaking. First of all, thou shalt be clear about the outcomes you want to achieve, Now that sounds obvious, but believe me, it's probably the biggest thing where you need to really bang on about it every single time. You need to bang on about it as well in conjunction with the second commandment, which is, thou shalt evaluate policy as objectively as possible. The two go naturally together, because if you haven't done the first, if you haven't worked out what success looks like, how are you going to evaluate whether you've achieved success? And unfortunately, too often, we we go down the route where we haven't done those two things. Thirdly, one that's really important in coalitions, I would say, is thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour's policies. The point I have here is that the modern problems that we face, public sector problems, ageing, obesity, climate change, I can name all of these they are not solved by any one department. They need a lot of different departments working together. And they're not, not necessarily solved by governments. They could be solved by individuals. There could be all sorts of different ways of doing these things. So you need to make sure that you get collective buying. You need cabinet all on your side. And uh, when you're in coalition, you need to make sure that they are coalitionalized sensibly. Fourth commandment from me. Thou shalt not assume the government has to solve every problem. And I think there is an issue there, that governments think there's a problem there, therefore we need to do something. Uh, I think that, for me, and, and this, because of the time, will have to be on another occasion, I hope we will get a chance for another occasion, I basically think there are, there are three ways in which our models of the way the world works, the way policy works, go wrong. The first is that we have a model of the way individuals behave and choose that is fundamentally flawed. Right? We assume individuals make consistent decisions, that they don't make mistakes, and, and that they, are, uh, they have all the information they need, and that they are in touch with what I call the future you. And actually, I think all of those things aren't true uh, to the extent they need to be, and we, we get model failures, because our models basically assume away all of those things. Uh, secondly, with companies, we've got a model of the way companies operate, profit maximisation, which I think has got some flaws to it. And we've got a problem about the way governments operate because actually governments, and again, this is worth a lecture, all on its own. Um, I can tell you, don't work the way the textbooks say they do. And it's more complicated than that. When you put these three things together, you actually start to get really interesting policy analysis. And that's what I think places like the LSE should be teaching, is that sort of policy analysis. At the moment, I think what we've got is the policy analysts that come to us, I think very much like, if you, if you like medical students, where they've been taught in year one how perfect bodies work, and then in year two we send them out to hospitals. And curiously enough, the people that arrive aren't, aren't in perfect health. I think quite often what we've got are people who understand how Perfect markets work, perfect uh, governments work, and all the rest of it. And actually, what we really care about is dealing with disease. If you're in government, actually, if it's working perfectly, you don't have to worry about it. What you have to worry about is when you've got all of those failures coming together so people aren't saving enough for their retirement. They're doing things that they later regret. They're making mistakes. I will whiz through the last four very, very quickly. Number six for me... Sorry, number five Because I said, Thou shalt not, number four was, Thou shalt not assume the government has to solve every problem. And number five follows on from that, which is, Thou shalt not rush to legislate. There is a massive bias in the system. If you look around the cabinet table, apart from the cabinet secretary, who now actually is no longer uh, valid for this, they all sit in a legislative body, either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. Their first thoughts tend to be, how do we create some legislation to solve this problem and that is a massive bias in the system and having seen legislation go through it's clunky it's very time-specific it tends not to be the right solution in my experience so I would say look at all the other ways of doing it if none of them work then think about legislation number six Honor the evidence and use it to make decisions. I think, I've, I've come back to this, we are now able to get at evidence much more widely, um, and we also have the option of generating more evidence. That, I think, is really useful, and we're doing it in a lot of the behavioral stuff. We are looking at taking different areas of the country, applying slightly different variants of the same model to them, and then being able to optimize the policy, and it makes a huge difference. Uh, it's really successful. Number Seven, I think this flows from what I said about monetary policy committees and, and the like. Thou shalt be clear who is accountable for what and line up the powers and the accountabilities. Right? It's, this is massively important where things go wrong you 've got people who are being trying to be held for account when they haven 't got the power to actually do what they want. Uh, like I said, I think the monetary policy committee is a very, very good example. Three final ones, which are more about the how than the rest of it. Uh, If you want to make government work very well, number eight, thou shalt not kill the messenger. Really important. Uh, It's public sector officials uh, have to be able to go in and tell ministers bad news and they have to be received in a constructive fashion when they do that. And it's very important you're able to encourage internal debate. Uh, If you don't have that internal debate about things, the first you'll learn about your mistakes will be from your enemies, not your friends. Very important. Number nine, thou shalt not forget that it is a privilege to serve. I mean, the jobs I've had, every day I wake up and pinch myself, these are fantastic jobs. You have a privilege, you have to live that privilege, and the values of the civil service of honesty, objectivity, integrity, and impartiality are absolutely crucial, and you have to go into work every day thinking, the taxpayer is funding me. I need to give the taxpayer a really good rate of return on what he's doing. And I think that should motivate us, that we make a difference, but we also absolutely understand what a great privilege it is to serve. And finally, thou shalt keep a sense of proportion. The, uh, a minister, who probably better of a name nameless, um, said to me many times when we were dealing with some horrifically complex negotiations, and I quote... Thank God it's only a game. And in a sense, it's about keeping that sense of proportion. Too often, people talk about crises when they're talking about bad headlines. It's really important to focus on the real impact on people's lives. As public sector servants and officials, we can make a huge difference to people's lives. We can change the world for the better. It's a great opportunity, a great privilege to be able to do that. But it's also one where you need to keep it in proportion. And where you are making a real difference, that's fantastic. Where it's all about the next day's headlines, you know, don't worry too much. So my basic message is uh, that in the public sector, you can make a, a massive difference. If you live by the Ten Commandments, you'll go to heaven. Public sector heaven is where you have made the world a much, much better place. Thank you.
0: Right. Gus, thank you very much indeed. That was extremely interesting. As as an old lag in Westminster and Whitehall, I think um, your Ten Commandments perhaps could just be written out and put on the top of a few buildings. Um, uh, They are very, very sound lessons about not only how to behave, but also how to survive, I think, in in that particular jungle, which is jungle indeed. you concentrated very much on um, the policy consequences of a number of things that you've seen. Can I just ask about the machine itself? Um, I know you've done a lot with the civil service in the last few years. It's changed enormously in the last 20 years. Do you think it's now in a position where it's I mean you clearly feel it's better able particularly to deal with policy analysis but do you think the whole executive functioning of government is working better or less well or is in a position to improve in the future? I mean, I really find some of the mistakes which one reads on the front page of the Financial Times from week to week make me clutch my head and think who on earth is advising who about this, but it was ever thus. But is it really in a position where over the next 20 years we'll be able to see a more effective, um, a more professional public service than we've had?
1: Well, I think... Uh, we've done a lot to professionalise the public service. You know, When I, when I arrived in, in 1979, I remember we had two monetary policy uh, groups in the Treasury. One was the economists, who were, thank you very much, you're the ivory tower people. One was the, I, I'd call them the classicists, a bit unfair. but um, And they were the people that advised the Chancellor. So uh, when you look back on that, as a, as a kind of form of amateurishness, if, if we were to uh, appoint to the Monetary Policy Committee people that didn't know any economics, I think we'd be criticised quite heavily. So I think there the was, uh, I think the professionalisation, I think, has been really important. And not, not, I stress, not just in economics. And I think, in general, the, the lesson of what I was saying there is that uh, this is very multidisciplinary now. I mean, public policy analysis needs all of the disciplines together. And that, that model I was talking about, which I want to explore further... Of, of failures in the different parts needs all of the different disciplines, social science disciplines, to be getting together, to talk about how you solve those problems. I think too far, the economists have been in the lead in ways that have been quite damaging. Uh, so I think we need to get the psychologists, the sociologists, the political scientists, lots of other people in the room. I think so. The thing that civil service has improved, we've we've uh, tapped uh, a talent base that when I first joined in 1979 was hardly there, which is women. Uh, we've got some fantastic uh, uh, women who've come through the system. The fast stream now is 50-50, uh, and that's fed through the system. So we've, we're getting, I think, uh, a better pool of talent. We also think much, much more about leadership than we used to. So we have a top 200 group that didn't used to exist, of, of the top 200 Silver Sermons that basically get together, look at the key problems. Um, so I think a lot of the things we're doing are meaning that the the civil servants are, and I stress, I'm talking now about the civil service, not the the wider public sector. I think civil service is better able to do this. Institutionally, I gave some examples where I think we've made institutional steps forward. I don't think we, I think there is further to go along those lines. The the, the review of so-called quangos attempted to delineate those things which need to stay in government and and all the rest of it. Um, I would like to see a bit more clarity there about actually uh, you know, government's really sorting out, well here's an area where we can define the objective we want and we can send someone away, give them the power and responsibility to go and deliver it. And we're still in a situation where those things are quite rare yeah, yeah. And, and I think we need more of them, mm. basically.
0: But I think that's a very interesting point about The ways in which one can take what are, from the point of view of a professional civil servant, rational and sensible decisions and begin to determine where that boundary might lie, and it's a a very difficult one, I think, between what the public sector should properly do and what the private sector could perfectly competently do. But when that... And this is what my second Mm. point I wanted to come on to is that is an area which can be bedevilled by politics Mm. rather than rational, Mm. sensible decision-taking, although there is a lot of rational, sensible decision-taking in politics. I hasten to add for those politicians in the room. um, But once politics starts to, to bite on the questions of the boundaries of the public sector, I think one gets into a situation where even the Ten Commandments would fail one, because it's often a matter of getting through till Tuesday rather than necessarily doing the right thing. Um, what you, you didn't perhaps touch on in your, in your discussion, which I thought was very, was very interesting, but the question of how the civil service and politicians manage their relationship, I and mean, it's something I found very interesting for a long time, because one can so often see a clash of priorities, and the extent to which that is becoming easier to handle as you develop more professional and more evidence-based policy and in some ways becomes more difficult when the political decisions are not really decisions that are based on evidence but pull into, as the poll tax did to some extent, pull in all these other things which don't necessarily fit with the way in which a highly professional civil service might want them to.
1: But I think we're getting into the space now where... Uh, we could slightly uh, miss some of the political reality. I mean, it would be a wonderful world if we could differentiate the what and the how. Uh, uh, what? Let, let's help uh, families with children. Uh, let's give them a child benefit and, and let somebody else go off and, and find the best way of doing that. But in fact, the how is incredibly political. The giving it to mothers rather than uh, giving it to uh, fathers was a massively important political decision. So I think this is where it gets messy, and this is where the public sector is itself. Uh, you know, the kinds of things you're having to do tend to be quite messy, uh, and I think that's that is why there are going to be some mistakes. And, and the other reason I yeah, think, as fair. an economist, I think it's, it's well worth remembering. Well, people say, Well, you're not as efficient as the private sector. Well, the point about the private sector is competition. And failure regimes and people that aren't very good go bust. And in the public sector, quite often, there isn't a failure regime and there isn't any choice. And so, all of those forces, invisible forces that force efficiency and force the service to be responsive to the needs of the user, aren't there. And you try and replicate them, try and mimic them, you try and do various things, but actually, in the end, I would say, There's a kind of iron law which says you're not ever going to be quite as efficient as a highly competitive uh, market. Mm -hmm.
0: Very interesting point, which I'm sure we'll want to explore. We could talk about it for a long time. Let us now open issues up to you. Just before you wave your hands up, can I just say um, what I will (coughs) try and do is take three or four questions in a bunch so that Gus gets a chance to answer them together. Um, We've got about 45 minutes now, and um, I think we should try and get as many in as we possibly can. Pans. One down here, please. This gentleman here. And there's a gentleman with a scarf on. And um, at the back in yellow, please. And then right at the far back in the corner there in blue. Thank you. Right, could we start with you,
2: Um, Can I ask you about putting square pegs in square holes Um, and to mention Parkinson's Law, which has for years been out of print in this country but is uh, recommended reading in most of the top American business schools. Um, What do you think of the idea of people choosing for themselves whether they go for a particular appointment? as against those responsible for making the appointment deciding who the best candidate might be and if necessary twisting an arm to get that person to uh, present himself or herself for the appointment Um, in my main career I was responsible alongside the chief executive to whom I reported for about 15 senior appointments a year and that went on for about 10 years and in that time hand on heart um, we made one bad appointment. I have to say that about a year into my service there uh, we scrapped the HR department because we found that they produced a short list consisting of people who completed the application form the best and wrote the best references for themselves um, um, and in fact, we found sorry, that. Could we just
0: make this a question rather than? A, yes. Rather than could you me.
2: comment on those two no. alternative processes?
0: Could I please? I should have done this at the beginning. Forgive me. Could I please ask you all to say who you are and where you come from, please, before you give your question? Gentleman over here, I think now. Yeah. Hi, uh, Matthew Halliday,
2: member of the public. Uh, two quick questions. Um, where do policies actually come from? Because some are so cranky and disappointing. Do they come from the civil service or the MPs or wherever? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, with the okay. chair's permission, uh, if it's within your remit, what does, how does the civil service consider what I may call the dreadful European bureaucracy?
0: Thank you very much. I'm a user, a member of the public and a user, I've been uh, myself for ages. What I want to know is why is, as we read in the papers, expert care for the disabled so expensive and why is the disabled being stigmatised because they're disabled and not the people who care for them? I mean, this, this little girl got shot. Her father wants a million pounds to look after her. Is that reasonable? I mean, why should yep. she be stigmatised when her father, who is her father, wants all that money? You know, I know care is expensive, but you go somewhere and then they want they want about 40, 100 pounds for an, an hour, half an hour, and then you're left with high and dry. You you haven't done anything. Yep. You they haven't cared for you. You know. Right. So Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much.
2: Hi, good evening, Uh, my name is Kostavarajar, I'm a doctoral researcher on civil service elites at the Cass Business School. My question is, um, given the complexity of the issues, uh, do you see a return to the old um, role model civil servant as the custodian, the Plato's guardian, which of course receded with the professionalization of the civil service, so it was more of a technocratic managerial set. Now, given the interdisciplinary nature of some of the issues which you have talked about, do you see we're going to see a back to the old custodian notions? Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: That's
1: very much right. That's a varied list. Um, in terms of uh, HR departments, people choosing their own careers, uh, it's, it's very interesting because uh, my own career on, on going into uh, the Treasury, uh, I remember we, we had a, a kind of HR department that, uh, four of us had ap- applied to do a job in Washington and uh, I was ranked fourth <coughs> by the uh, HR department and the person who was going to be my boss, uh, a guy called Tim Lancaster, actually chose me. And um, It was quite transformational for me to, to move from what had been a very uh, techy uh, job in the Treasury on the econometric side and forecasting to being a diplomat in Washington and it was very good career development. What we do in the the civil service as a whole now is we have a talent management approach where we have a nine box grid and we look very carefully uh, and it's not the HR people that look, it's the permanent secretaries looking at who their talent is and and allocating people and telling them where they are on on this grid and then devising with uh, each other what are the things people need to bring them forward. or you know, is it that so-and-so has spent their lives in just one department, needs a bit of experience somewhere else? Does someone need a bit more experience on an operational delivery role to make them really understand the complexity of those sorts of issues? So we do that, talent management, uh, very actively now. Um, yes, there is a kind of fair and open competition, but it's also tied in very much to an active talent management process. So I hope we've tried to learn some of the lessons that you suggested. Uh, Matthew asked where the policies come from. Well, sometimes they come from manifestos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, manifesto policies are interesting in that some disappear from view slowly and, and it was a very interesting process when uh, the coalition was being formed where they both had their manifestos and. Uh, It was quite apparent that that some of those policies mattered a lot to them and some of them they were very happy to ditch. (laughs) and and, uh, Hence, within a very short time, they came up with a programme for government which was bringing two manifestos together. We'd have thought, well, these are completely different parties. Actually, they they quite happily came up with a very coherent set of uh, uh, policies. So that's where they came from. Um, That's not to say that's where all policies come from because, curiously (laughs) enough, events dear boy events come along and issues you might have a kind of view in your mind about how you're going to manage foreign policy but when a Libya happens or a Syria happens then you confront it very viscerally as it were and you and you your your feeling about how to manage that policy is very much guided by your experience and as governments do more things and have more As it were, shocks and new things happen to them so they evolve in their policy thinking so policy thinking on day one and policy thinking on uh, year four, year five, very different so I think that's where they come from what do the civil servants think about EU bureaucracy well um, the reality is you have to deal with it it's a very important part of your life if you're a civil servant that quite often uh, if you're trying to do something there are EU directives around this you can't ignore them, you have to you know, they are the law of the land, quite often. I and mean, you have to work with, with, within those uh, boundaries. For example, when we're dealing with the financial crisis, uh, a lot of the things I was worrying about were state aid rules, um, which you could not couldn't, you know, do. So you have to understand about the EU. It doesn't mean you have to love it. You have to understand it and you have to learn how to influence it. And the big thing you learn about influencing it is the earlier you start to influence it, the better. It's no good waiting until the commissions come up with a directive. You have to get in there and try and win the battle of ideas. Um, trying, over many years, to have the EU to think about the competitiveness of the EU as a whole, vis-a-vis the rest of the world, to think about growth strategies, I think has been a very frustrating uh, issue for me. But you haven't, you know, I don't think I've succeeded there. So that's uh, On the question of expert care, uh, I couldn't agree more. I've... I've uh, there are really interesting questions about how one can manage care for the disabled and uh, I have um, been out to visit places um, daycare places where there has been care and they're they're thinking about the whole business about personalized budgets and and listening to uh, carers have a heated debate about whether personalized budgets made sense some of them saying well, if you give the budgets to to the carers, they won't do the best by the disabled who are within their care. Others saying, no, no, you've got to trust them. And I think that's a a debate we need to be clear about, and I I know where you stand on that debate, but it's... Well, uh, and, and really we need to think about making sure that there are processes to ensure that what is our, you know, as I said, the ultimate goal of policy really matters. And the ultimate goal of this policy should be giving the best possible care for disabled people and allowing them to, to thrive. Um, political economy, uh, that was uh, an extremely erudite question. Um, and uh, I'd like to think that we're learning uh, a lot about the way economic, about public policy works from realising that we need the strengths of an enormous number of different disciplines. And I think that's kind of the learning for me was having come from an economics background, realising that lots of things within that background didn't quite fit with the world that I was observing out there and having to modify my world view, if you like, to, to take into account the evidence the massive evidence uh, that was around that, that actually that didn 't describe the world as I observed it, so I think we we are learning those sorts of skills, and that 's why it 's really good that we have a very diverse civil service, much more diverse than it was, like I say when I joined, come from a range of backgrounds, uh, a range of genders, and I think that diversity is a, is a real strength for us, and so you 've got people particularly, you know, we, we're much more relaxed about nationality rules now uh, and you've got people coming in. I remember in the Treasury when uh, Gordon Brown was starting to do some of his ideas thinking about fiscal rules that we had Australians, we had New Zealanders, we had people from various European countries uh, all coming together thinking about these things and there's a massive wealth of different uh, ways of doing things and now we, I think we're much more aware that uh, just looking at what the uk 's done in its history isn 't enough that we can actually learn an enormous amount from the experiments that have happened elsewhere and from getting the different disciplines. You know, I think some of the great successes, uh, yes. discoveries uh, have been where the different disciplines have got together and realized there are some overlaps
0: Good, thank you very much right. Um, Gentlemen, there, please. Um, in yellow stripes. Sorry, it's the only way I can, I can do it. At the back there. Okay. Um, lady there in red. Yep, there. And um, in the middle at the back there. Thank you. Can we do those four and then
2: move on? Thank you. Sure. Um, I'm Saga. I'm an economist at a think tank called the New Economics Foundation. Um so my in your in your talk you alluded to how it's not about maximizing you know, the policy shouldn't be about maximizing GDP and we need to think more about happiness and, and well being. Um so my my question for you is how, how can that be brought you know there, there are initiatives at the moment on to to how to measure this um taken by the ONS, but how can we take this forwards for it to be at the center of policymaking? have got a second question, um, which relates to a really high turnover rate uh, of staff at the Treasury, um, which I see is, uh, given the, the importance of the department for government, as you, as you highlighted in your speech, I see that as being a, a big problem. Um, and what, what, what are your thoughts on this and what can be done? Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Julie Cobill, I work for Vertex Public Services, Um, we are an outsourcer, and um, former student of public policy here at the LSE. So you mentioned the benefits of uh, competition in the private sector and and efficiency in that respect. Um, But you also mentioned the value of a public ethos in, in delivering public services. So I really wanted to ask kind of where you stand on the relationship between civil servants and kind of outsourcers and the private sector working together. Um, to deliver public services and how you can instill that public sector ethos in the private sector. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Hi, my name's Caroline and I'm a civil servant at the moment. Um, I receive emails and communications on an almost daily basis that are written in a language that is sometimes impenetrable um, and often very, very hard to understand. Um, as a taxpayer, I find that quite frustrating, and you alluded earlier to FOI legislation that might be driving that. I was interested in your thoughts on that and whether or not you thought that was democratic.
2: I am K. Mahesh. Uh, Should, sorry,
1: could, could I just ask clarification from you? When you were saying you get communications, do you mean these are internal from, from other departments, or do you mean communications from government departments to you as a member of the public?
0: Uh, generally internal
2: civil it's servants a, talking to other civil yeah. servants. okay, fine. Okay, thank you. okay you take that. I am K Mahesh, I'm an Indian civil servant and I'm intruder and I'm LLM student at the LSE. Uh, in fact, uh, UK established the Indian civil uh, services in India. Uh, how do you rate the Indian civil servants now and what are the strengths and weaknesses of a British civil servant?
0: Okay. Thank you. I think I may have to ask, you to begin to eschew these double-decker club sandwich of questions that we're getting, because Gus is being given eight instead of four each time. Yes. Um, so keep it as simple as you can, but thank you, that was a particularly interesting sandwich.
1: Uh, I recognise I set a bad example with the numbers point, uh, so I, I can't really complain about that. Uh, Saga from New Economics Foundation. Um, the, the whole idea of, of happiness and, and uh, trying to understand what it is we're really trying to achieve, and being clear about outcomes, I think is going to transform the way we do policy. Right? And uh, Richard, who's there, and I were both uh, at a UN conference. Uh, incredible that the, the tiny country of Bhutan got the whole of the world to New York to talk about happiness. Right? And Richard. Uh, and uh, other academics produced a World Happiness Report, which I commend to you all, uh, looking at the, you know, and a- analysing these issues across the different countries. I think this is massively important, and I think it's it's it should be, just as the Millennium Development Goals, right, really focus the world's attention on some really key issues, I think if we could think about their replacement, thinking about how we would, Uh, solve some of the problems about happiness and well-being in some the poorest countries but also some of the specific areas within rich countries I think we could make a massive difference to policy now it will take a while there'll be people saying this is all fluffy nonsense right I I generally coming from a background of having learnt my economics at Warwick and uh, everything was pages and pages of maths I tend not to be called fluffy so i'm um, you know i think it's quite important on us who understand and are quite happy writing an argument in pages of pages of totally impenetrable jargon and maths uh, to actually explain these things and, and be able to say actually this is a very sensible way to direct policy so i think once we st- and, and it's really hard to develop policy if you haven't got good measures so we need some global measures but we also need some micro measures so when it came to that planning issue one of the key things for us will be valuing some of the intangibles in that and and that's some of the work I think uh, Professor Dolan is doing and so there's some others so we can really make some differences there if we get that right on the turnover, very interesting question about how that's impacting on the well-being of uh, Treasury staff. Um, turnover is far too high in Treasury. They recognise that. Um, it's a real issue because um, if you think about, the, uh, and I was speaking about this earlier, the fact that there had been a very long period in the economy where it had been unusually stable. Uh, and you know, Charlie Bean of, of the LSE had written this paper in the Economic Journal, I think, saying that the governor will be writing uh, a certain amount of letters to the Chancellor about when inflation was outside target, and in fact, no letters were written. The the economy was incredibly, unusually stable for a long period, and I think people began to believe the the rhetoric of no more boom and bust and the like, and that I think was a real problem. We didn't have enough people who had experiences of recessions and there certainly weren't people you know when you talk to them about liquidity traps this was kind of oh well, I may have done an essay about that 10 years ago as opposed to this being very real uh, a real public policy issue so I think turnover is too high there's a very good report on the treasury that you've probably seen that Sharon White wrote and uh, we need to, uh, and Nick McPherson is PermSec there, and I know, and Sarah Hogg as the lead non executive director in Treasury, are with the Chancellor, obviously actively thinking about how do we solve that problem. It is a, is a problem because um, Treasury people are highly marketable, uh, and they make the foolish mistake of thinking that GDP matters, and therefore they think about maximizing their income. <laughs> Massive problem. <laughs> their well-being goes down, they leave the treasury, they go and work for some city analyst doing rent-a-quote and they're miserable right? they buy their second car, their second home, which means two lots of things to go wrong They want to their second wife, you know, it's just expense um, don't do it, Right? just work in the public sector it's it massively good for your well-being, I've had years of it and I'm incredibly happy um, that brings the sandwich together I think on that one. Um, Julie's Julie's question about outsourcing, um, uh, I think it is interesting having dealt with uh, outsourcing people you know we've got private sector prisons versus public sector prisons, we've got uh, outsourcers providing uh, various areas. Uh, I start off with a kind of... I'm somewhat neutral across um, public versus private on these things. I think what should really dominate our decision-making is what's best for the public, what's best for the users of the service. If it turns out, and there are certain cases where the users really care and want the people they're dealing with to be public sector people, Uh, and if that really influences and affects the the quality of the service they perceive, then that's, I think, a very, very important determinant. There are other areas where there's been some incredibly successful outsourcing. I know one of the ones I was involved in very early on was National Savings and Investment, which used to have thousands of staff. And actually, these were things that could be done very efficiently by the private sector. There's now about 100 in National Savings who do a brilliant job. It's an example where they've solved some of the accountability agency uh, problems where they've got the powers and responsibilities in the right place and they've increased efficiency quite dramatically. They could do more uh, on the efficiency side, um, but um, I think that's a, an issue for the private sector. But I think they do that incredibly well. How do you get the ethos across to your the private sector workers uh, who are doing an outsourcing contract? Um, that, that's an interesting question. In a sense, that's, you know, I An easy thing to say and boy have I said this in the last few weeks not my problem thank goodness Um, but uh, it it is uh, something where I think if you're running the outsourcing company I think getting people to start thinking about the difference they're making to people's lives uh, really matters I mean when it comes to issues about care and the like you know you can see there are some areas where that public sector ethos that ethos about really caring for what you're doing hasn't quite got through in a private sector space. And I think private sector companies lose out when they don't get that real buy-in to, to what they're ultimately trying to do. Um, Caroline's problem about language. Um, uh, of course, I've never been responsible for telling someone that they need to really concentrate on neoclassical endogenous growth theory. And uh, it's, it's true. As civil servants to civil servants... Um, it can be incredibly frustrating. One of my jobs in Treasury was working on defense spending. Uh, if, you, if anyone in the audience, and I see as a former permanent Secretary of Defense up there, they don't speak English. right? They, they, it, it's a language uh, that's acronyms, um, and you don't have an individual you're talking to, you have a post, so they have a set of initials. Um, it's another world. Uh, We have to realize that jargon is a sort of an exclusionary device, as well as a device for um, uh, saving time amongst people that that understand the language. So uh, there's really no excuse for it. Um, That Gower's book about plain English is one to have by your side and to basically consume it. If you look at the way The Economist writes, for example, whether you agree with the way that magazine is, is what they're actually saying, they, are, they have style guides, and they, they do get across complex things very simply, and I think that's yeah. our job. And as civil servants, we should really concentrate on that because we need to do it for ministers. And it's really important that we do it well for ministers because uh, the ministers may not have been there very long and they may not have had much time. Average tenure, one year, three months, or whatever. So, you know, you, they're, they're learning really quickly, and it's really important that we use language to communicate not to obfuscate. So I'm, I'm with you there. Um, do we do it better in Britain than they do it in India? Um, is an interesting question. I don't know the Indian civil service well enough to be able to make the comparison, I fear. I have met some very senior Indian civil servants who have been incredibly impressive. Um, so, but I, I don't have enough of an evidence base across the whole civil service. I know quite a bit about the Australian, the New Zealand, the Canadians and the Irish. I don't know much about the Indians. Um, so I can't make that comparison, I'm afraid. I'm going to pass on that one. Um, the, in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of the British civil service, I'd say uh, I think our strengths are our diversity. I think uh, the public sector ethos, the values... A massive strengths. I think in the past, uh, and, and this is something I was trying to get to, I think those, those classic values of honesty, objectivity, integrity, and impartiality were great. What I felt we lacked when I became cabinet secretary and what I pushed was what I called my four Ps. I think because of the impartiality, we lacked pride and passion. I wanted more passion. I wanted people to really care about public getting public policy right because it was people 's lives that were at stake and and there was a sense in which the sort of Sir Humphrey approach said no no don't get passionate about this because we might be doing a completely different policy the next day. We can be passionate about doing the best by the public right? and I think with the you know given whatever policy decisions have been made, making sure that they work best for the public, I think and so Pride and passion, massively important. Being proud of being a civil servant. You know, I, I, I do not like the idea that people, when they go to dinner parties, say, what do you do? And they're kind of, oh, I don't want to say I'm a civil servant. <laughs> Believe me, if you say you're a banker, you know. Um, so I think you should be absolutely proud, and I'm really proud to have been a civil servant. The other two that I have was pace and professionalism. I think pace is something where, you know, occasionally... We, we do want to go through all the hoops and sometimes you just have to drive things. Uh, and professionalism, I think that's something we're improving, but we can always get better at um, understanding how to, in a fast-moving world, you know, how is it that the private sector has persuaded people that you can take some leaves, wrap them in paper, set fire to it, uh, and, and that's a brilliant thing to buy. Uh, their persuasive powers are fantastic. Can we persuade people uh, to do things which actually uh, they will be really pleased that we persuaded them to do? I think there's a, an element there that we could explore.
0: Thank you very much. We're going to be here for half the night, but I think I'm going to try and say please, can you keep your questions very short and we'll try and get through as many people as possible. Yes, you, sir, and you've been waiting very patiently. Um, in the middle there. Yep and
3: um, the end there thank you uh, thank you uh, my name is John Ewer my question is uh, what should be the role of uh, civil servants when a parliamentary select committee wishes to have a forensic examination of a government department thank you uh, Mark Anthologoff. I work on uh, digital transformation and change largely in the public sector um, <clears throat> Gus, your rule number one was um, uh, be clear about your outcomes. And uh, a few years ago in a conversation uh, after a presentation you made, you said to a promising young colleague of mine in in the civil service that you needed to encourage a culture where people could innovate and that failure should be tolerated. Yet it seems to me that we're still far too process-oriented and that the culture uh, is still not allowing for that so that people are afraid of failing and that is actually um, breeding more process. What would you say has changed, if anything, since you made that comment about five years ago and what can we do about it now? Because I think these are vitally important to get right.
0: My name is Dina Heinle. I'm also a member of the public. I have a question about transparency in the civil service. And what in your mind is the right balance between transparency and confidentiality? Because going back to Sir Humphrey, I think one of the great lessons in, in Yes Prime Minister was Sir Humphrey advising the new minister that you can either have government or you can be open. Sorry, it was you can either be open or you can have government, but obviously you can't have both. Great. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah. Uh, Keith Raffin, former Member of Parliament. Um, would you agree that the last 72 hours have shown that uh, the role of ministers, special advisers, particularly in relation to civil servants, needs to be more closely defined? And in order to improve parliamentary legislation and the quality of legislation, which is totally, t- totally inadequate parliamentary scrutiny at the moment, particularly at committee stage, wouldn't governments be well advised to formalise the role of select committees so that they actually look at the concepts behind a piece of legislation the year before that legislation comes before the House.
1: Right. Um, A very, very uh, good set of questions. Um, John on uh, the civil servants and uh, that's right, your question about the forensic examination uh, of uh, civil servants. Really important, I think, that we are accountable to Parliament uh, as accounting officers, massively important. Uh, it's laid out very clearly what that role should be in the Cabinet Manual, uh, i.e. there's a requirement there on civil servants to be uh, forthcoming uh, to civil servants, to live by their values, uh, honesty, objectivity, integrity and I say them all the time. You don't need to anything else. That's what every civil servant that appears before a select committee is required to do and anything else is basically theater. Um, so uh, I strongly uh, agree with you that we, we need to have that uh, forensic ability. But it does go into the second question exactly, which is, uh, and I stress this in what I said, accountability, good accountability, is about success and failure. It's not just about failure. And it's really important we learn from successes. And also when it comes to failures, if you 're innovating, which is the point I would have been trying with limited success I accept to to push in the uh, in the public sector, is that if you're innovating, you are going to have some uh, failures, no question about it. The question is did you do the right risk mitigation and uh, you know was it reasonable for you to have failed in that sense and i uh, it is to me a source of frustration that I haven't been able to get an in- innovative culture enough. I started a thing called, the, which a lot of the civil servants will know, Civil Service Live. I tried getting Peter Jones from Dragon's Den. To, you know, I've tried pushing uh, various schemes within departments to get people to innovate. Uh, one of the things, actually, one of the best sources of innovation, which I hadn't realized, was there's no money, right? And it's happened around government. Uh, I think lots of civil servants will tell you this: when they suddenly didn't have a marketing budget, they discovered other ways of getting across their things. When they suddenly couldn't employ consultants, they discovered other ways. And I hope, in doing that, they'll come. They'll we'll learn things permanently, which are good. So I've tried very hard on in innovation. I I think we need that thought about the way innovation should happen to spread to all of those bodies that wish to hold us to account, as well as um, uh, within the civil service itself. So um, I hope that answers your question as well. Um, what's changed? I think within the, the, the civil service, we're trying to change in the sense of trying to ensure that as part of a civil servant's makeup and their training, we give them exposure to different things so, so that we do have a more diverse workforce. We are looking at people who've had different experiences. If you look at... I mean, you take the difference between, say, the civil service and the police service. The thing about civil services. is we get people joining the civil service at all sorts of ranks who've come from all sorts of different backgrounds, and the numbers are really quite compelling. So we've got lots of private sector people who've come into the civil service realising the errors of their ways and now having <laughs> a higher level of well-being, making a big difference. Right? Um, they add an enormous amount, and their experience is incredibly valuable because... The one thing, as I said, the nature of the way we do public services, often offering them free of charge at the point of delivery and the sense of health, is that we don't get that commercial experience and those commercial uh, lessons that people in the private sector have. So we need to get both. Um, So I think that's really important. Third question about transparency and confidentiality. How do we get to that Uh, and the good old Sir Humphrey stuff? Um, Actually, I am passionate about transparency and openness but it's to be honest people always then move to freedom of information let's park that for one side at the moment openness and transparency are really really useful for policy if if i were uh, in charge of the world what i would do is say uh, I think it's really important that when government gets accurate, reliable data, we get it out there publicly as soon as possible. You know, the example I've always given is, is the one about the um, uh, accidents are from cyclists in London, where we collected the data. You know, in the old days, we would have done all sorts of policy work, maybe even come up with some legislation—god forbid about it. But in fact, what was done was we just published the data. The cycle user groups worked out. New maps to go around the the black spots and and did, you know, again, it goes back to my commandment about don't think government has to solve all the problems. So I'm a massive fan of transparency and openness. I think we should do that in terms of data as much as we can. Uh, And, you know, sunlight is a great disinfectant. The, The proviso I would have is that we definitely need to ensure there can be openness when ministers want to question each other right and and if you don't allow for a safe space for ministers in cabinet to basically say okay secretary of state x has put forward this policy i think it's completely crazy for the following four reasons right and you don't want to see those four reasons appear in the newspaper the next day right? Uh so i think it's really important you'll get much better quality public policy debates if there is a safe space uh, for that confidential exchange And believe me, if you don't create the safe space, it will be created by others, by getting together on their mobile phones in a much, much worse space. So I think there's a real case for government being as proactive as possible, publishing as much as possible, being as open and transparent as possible, and at the same time creating clear, unambiguous safe spaces for uh, genuine disagreements to take place. So that's my bit on that. Special advisers. There is a special advisers code uh, and there are very clear rules about what they should and should not do. And I think when special advisers break those rules, the absolutely right thing that should happen is that they should resign and leave. And I think we've observed this week that as the Secretary of State said in Parliament, uh, there were clear problems and that that special adviser has resigned. Uh, There is a code of conduct. It is really important because I'm one of these people, I am not against special advisors. I am a believer that good special advisors are very good for the civil service because they help uh, in those areas where if there aren't special advisors around, then the civil servants get dragged into politics in a way they shouldn't be. So I'm a believer in a model which has good special advisors and by good I generally mean those that really understand the policy area Uh, and that means I think if anything if I looked at the backgrounds of our special advisors I'd say too many of them uh, basically have a background in PR which I worry about which is (coughs) the fact that they then think and the special advisor code was rewritten uh, for coalition government to stress that the role of special advisors is to work for the government not for their particular Secretary of State, and that's a massively important thing. And I, so I, I'm very uh, strongly in favour of of that. The understanding of the code being uh, very uh, widely disseminated to special advisers. Um, on your point about select committees, I think we've we've seen an experiment now with with select committees where the uh, chairs have been elected, and I would say. My view is that that's been a great success, actually, and I think good select committees are really important for uh, the civil service for the good functioning of government. Your point about pre-led—I I take it as pre-legislative scrutiny, yeah, if you like.
3: The at the concept behind legislation. before, yeah,
1: before it gone? actually gone. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, the one proviso I would say there is that it comes back to this point about does it really all have to be about legislation? Because there are lots and lots of areas of policy where the right answer might not be a piece of legislation. And I know Parliament tends to kind of look at it and think of everything in terms of, are we doing enough legislative scrutiny, or are we doing, thinking enough about this? I'd like select committees to be thinking about problems earlier, and the, the solutions to those problems might well be that you want to have a different institutional structure, or you, you might want to you know, think about... Uh, some other ways of tackling the problem rather than legislation but I agree with you when, when the answer is legislation then it, it does make sense to try and ensure that between the two houses we do get really good scrutiny of legislation
0: okay. I think probably, um, I'm very sorry but we've run out of time um, thank you so much You've answered an amazing range, range of questions, <laughs> practically nothing left untouched in one way or another. Um, and I think you've given us a wonderful picture of both of the issues that you've faced in policymaking and some of the quite tricky questions involved in running a very large slice of the public sector. But thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm sure we've all learned a very great deal. And um, thank you for coming, and I hope we can persuade you back again soon.